It is a privilege beyond belief to be in this room with a group of people like this. We are all privileged beyond belief. If that's for me, please take a message. (laughs) I have been blessed to speak in every imaginable venue, I think, across the country and around the world. I've traveled extensively by God's grace, and quite often my wife travels with me. She can't always do that. So she's not with me here this weekend, but I need to tell you, we had a little tiff the other night, and uh, I told I love my wife so much. I told her the other day, I said, honey, if you ever leave me, I'm going with you. <laughs> I have been privileged, uh, as my brother mentioned, I am a high school dropout and an ex-convict. Uh, I have been privileged to teach in Bible colleges and seminaries and pastors' conferences and youth rallies across the country and around the world. They think I have a Ph.D. in theology. Not only do I not have a Ph.D. in theology, I am a high school dropout, I am an ex-convict, and I don't even have a fishing license. So God does choose the fool. He can choose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and I am imminently qualified. Redeeming the time. I uh, spent some time studying that passage because that is the theme of our conference this weekend. And I spent a lot of time, and I'm studying the context, and I'm studying the Greek, and after a fair amount of time, it occurred to me, it simply means making the most of every opportunity. Which is the way some Bible, when I realized that, I said, oh my goodness, that's the way some of the Bibles translated that verse. We are to make the most of every opportunity, and this life that we have is a gift from God, and it is our one opportunity to invest the talents that he has given us. It is our one opportunity to be salt and light to a lost and dying world. Yeah. According to the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the largest Protestant denomination in the world, polling their own people, 95% say that they have never even attempted to lead another person to Christ, and 75% of them think it's wrong to interfere with another person's belief system. George Barna says essentially the same thing. He says somewhere between 2 and 3% of people who identify themselves as evangelical Christians regularly share the gospel. That is a problem. I believe that one of the main reasons for this dilemma, for this epidemic, is two things, the fear of man and ignorance. We simply do not know enough to share the gospel with confidence and passion. My verse this morning is from Proverbs 29.25. Anybody have a Bible with them this morning? You don't need to turn there. I'm going to read it to you. By the time you get there, I will have already read it. I don't care how fast you are. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man is a snare. But he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. 
or made safe, another translation says. The fear of man is a trap. The, the word picture is that of a hunter who sets the snare. The animal is caught. The hunter comes along, takes the animal, and there's only two choices. He either keeps it in captivity to put on display, or he kills it and eats it. Satan, in this case, is the hunter, and you, Christian, are the hunted one. Writing to Christians, Peter said, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan spreads the net, and the fear of man drives us right into it. We smile when we should frown. We laugh when we should remain silent. Or worse, we remain silent when we should speak. We need to get real. I tell the men in jails and prisons, it's better to be what you is than what you ain't, because if you is what you ain't, then you ain't what you is. (laughs) Do I need to repeat that for anybody? (laughs) Some of you will get it on the way home. I read a uh, short magazine article about a professor, uh, atheistic professor, in a secular university who takes his first-year college students, first day of class, his freshman students, and he says, has anybody ever seen God? Nobody responds. If you can imagine the atmosphere that must exist in a place like this. Has anybody ever seen God? Raise your hand. Has anybody ever heard God? Has anybody ever touched God? And then he goes into a little monologue or tirade about how if you have faith in any so-called deity, by the time he's done with you this first semester, he will have successfully shredded whatever faith you might have. That's what goes on in some of these, that's the kind of foolishness that goes on in some of these institutions of higher learning. Some of these nutty professors have so many degrees, they don't have any temperature left. I wish we had one of those nutty professors in this class this morning. Because I'd like to ask this class a question, if you can imagine the atmosphere that's in a place like this. How many of you have ever heard the professor's brain? How many of you have ever seen the professor's brain? How many of you have ever touched the professor's brain? Well, then, based on the professor's own logic, we are forced to the inescapable conclusion that our professor is brainless. (laughs) The Bible has a lot to say about the fear of man. Abraham, the father of our faith, not once but twice was willing to give up his own wife because he feared what man might do to him. And his son Isaac did the same thing with Rebekah. King Saul was rejected as being king because he feared the people and offered a sacrifice that he was not authorized to make based on the fear of man. In the Old Testament, you were excused from war for any one of three reasons. If you had planted a vineyard and not tasted the fruit of the vine... If you had just married a wife, or if you were afraid. 
The fear of man had the potential of destroying the morale of an entire army. You all remember Gideon. God calls Gideon and says, Gideon, we're going to battle against the Midianites, and I'm going to guarantee you the victory. The problem is, you've got too many men. And if you win with that number, you just might try to touch the glory that belongs to me alone. The battle belongs to the Lord. So Gideon calls 32,000 men together. Says, men, God has called us to battle against the Midianites and he's guaranteed us the victory. But everybody who's afraid can go home right now. And 22,000 of them said, thank you, Jesus, and went home. (laughs) 10,000 was too many. The point is he can do more. With 300 spirit-filled, sold-out people than he can with 32,000 part-time, half-hearted pew-warmers and layabouts. Sometimes when I'm in church, when the music is being, when the worship is being offered up, and I think of where he has taken me from and what he has done for me, Sometimes I'm closing my eyes and sometimes I lift my hands a little bit and I bow my head because (laughs) because sometimes I'm so overwhelmed by his goodness and by his grace to a worm like me that he would save me because I should be dead. And I should be burning in hell right now. But God. Sometimes I lift my hands like this. I mean, sometimes I do it like this because I'm not trying to attract attention. But sometimes I lift my hands like this. And sometimes I lift my hands like this. And sometimes I lift my hands like this. Because I think that's how the priest held up the incense to the Lord. And one day after church, a lady came up to me. And said, I wish I could raise my hands in church. And I understood what the problem was right away. She was afraid of being perceived as a religious fanatic in her own church. She was afraid of what people would think, but in her heart. She wanted to lift up her hands to the God who gave her life. Some people do associate this with a particular sect of Christianity. Not true. We associate that with Paul speaking to his young protege, Timothy, who said, I want holy men to lift up, I want men of God to lift up holy hands everywhere. Isaiah 51, 12. God says, I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid of a man who will die and of the son of man who will be made like grass? I don't want to appear arrogant or haughty, but I'm not afraid of grass at all. In fact, I cut the grass at home. In all honesty, I wouldn't be afraid if there was a bale of hay right behind me right now. God compares the fearing of a man to being afraid of a piece of grass. We are psychologically oriented in many cases rather than truth-oriented, and we live by feelings rather than facts. The fear of man is like a gun without bullets. 
Its power is purely psychological. You can rob a store with a gun that's not loaded. It wields a lot of power. But if we discover that the gun is not loaded, the game is over. The fear of man is just like that. The only power that it has is the power that we give it. Because of what A.W. Tozer said was our number one problem, which is a faulty concept of God. And of course, who can fully comprehend the great I am? In John 5.44, Jesus said, How can you believe? How can you be a true believer is what he's saying. How can you believe if you seek the praise of men? But do not seek the praise that comes from the only God. We love the praise of men. In Isaiah 57, 11, God says, Whom have you so dreaded and feared that you have been false to me, and have neither remembered me nor pondered this in your hearts? You forget the Lord your God, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and made the foundations of the earth? I believe that the classic example of the fear of man surely must be Numbers chapter 13. You all know the history of redemption very well. In order to have a nation that's going to represent the redemption of God to the world, you've got to have some real estate. And God promised them the promised land. It was a land that flowed with milk and honey symbolic of the abundant life that God wants for his people. The abundant life that Jesus speaks of that so precious few people ever find. Do you realize that most people have lived and died without ever knowing what life was really all about? And we have been privileged, we have been entrusted with the secrets and the mysteries of the universe. We understand things that the prophets longed to look into. The angels didn't understand. They're watching in real time. We've got the whole picture from Genesis to Revelation. You carry it in your pocket. Wow! To whom much is given, much will be required. Deuteronomy uh, 28, Leviticus 26. He promises the blessings if they would be faithful, if they would trust him, if they would believe him, and the curses if they would not. And we see that played out in the history of Israel very clearly. So they get to the promised land. They get to the borders. God has already promised them the land. They've seen the miracles. They've seen the power of God like we have never seen. Seeing the Red Sea, being at Sinai, wow! But they decide that they need to develop a military strategy before they go in. So they send in the 12 spies. You know the story. They 12 go in, 12 come out. Two of them say it's a cakewalk, and the other 10 say the cities are fortified. There are giants in the land. And we were grasshoppers in our own sight. (laughs) Grasshoppers! God called them his children. We're the children of God. Are we warriors or are we wimps? We are warriors of righteousness. We wield the sword of the spirit like a master. They never got the blessing. Two did. The rest of them didn't. 
What's really interesting to me about that story is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, New Testament says these things, speaking of the story of the Israelites in the wilderness, these things were written for our instruction, for our example. This was written so the church would not make the same mistake the ancient Israelites did and fail to take the, 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 the blessings and the promises that God had given to them for the fear of man. In 2 Timothy 1.7, it says, We have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Everybody in this room knows that verse. How many of you know the next verse? We have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. When a girl gets engaged to be married and she gets an engagement ring, do you think she hides the hand in her pocket so nobody can see the ring? Or is she out showing everybody going, I got me a man. We're going to get hooked up. I just put new batteries in my ring. She's proud. She's blessed. And she's not afraid to tell anybody, I'm getting married. We should not be ashamed of Jesus. You walk into a restaurant. The maitre d' or the hostess comes up to you and says, table for two? And your spouse leans forward and says, we'd like separate tables, please. <laughs> and you look at her in utter amazement and say, why would we do that? And she says, well, I wouldn't want anyone to know we were married. <laughs> How would you feel? How do you think God feels when his own people are afraid to speak up for our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ? How do you think God must feel? If we're afraid to put that Bible on our desk, or if Joe sees me going to church, I think God has suffered more than any of us have ever suffered. Because he's rejected and laughed at, mocked, ridiculed, and accused of things he is not guilty of every day by millions of people, millions of his own creatures. I'm going to tell it like it is, folks. I'm going to get real straight here. The fear of man is idolatry. Idolatry is rival worship. Idolatry is spiritual adultery. James 4.4 4 says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Wow! That's strong talk. Adulterers and adulteresses. Who's he talking to? He's not writing to the world. He's writing to believers. He's writing to people who confess to have faith. I think I've defined the problem. I'd like to talk solutions. Part two. How do we get delivered from the fear of man? If it's any consolation... I'm not sure that any of us are completely immune from the spiritual disease known as the fear of man. 
I'll be honest with you. I really don't like approaching Muslims uh, and sharing the gospel or giving them one of our Muslim tracts. It's not my favorite thing to do. But I do it anyway. And after I do it, <laughs> I feel good. I've been speaking at the Cook County Jail for almost 25 years now. And I confess, there are times when I don't feel like going to the jail. It's, but I have never, in 25 years of going to the Cook County Jail, there have been times when I walked in dragging my feet, but I have never not walked out clicking my heels. Never, not once. Every single time I walk out of that building and I say, Thank you, Jesus. That is what we are here for. We are the salt of the world, salt of the earth and the light of the world. But Jesus said if the salt loses its flavor, well, salt doesn't lose its flavor. It's a stable compound. It wasn't the best way to translate that verse. If you really study it in the original language, a better way to translate that would have been if the salt is not being used for what it was designed for, it's good for nothing except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. I have salt in my home that's 10,000 years old from the Himalayan mountains. It still tastes like salt. <laughs> How did it get there, by the way? Noah's flood. How do we get delivered from the fear of man? Well, anytime you get delivered from any, whatever you want to call it, stronghold, sin, bad habit, anytime you get delivered, you fill in the blank from whatever it is, it's a work of grace. A work of grace is something only God can do. Paradoxically, your part must be factored in. A work of grace is something only God can do. But our parts must be factored in. There are dozens of verses that would teach this. Galatians 5.22 The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. There's God working in us and through us to accomplish his purposes and to help us grow in our most holy and precious faith. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. We are to learn to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. There we are working together with God. We're working out our salvation with fear and trembling. It doesn't say work for your salvation. It says work out your salvation. And the idea, according to Warren Wiersbe, in that verse is, it's like digging for treasures, like digging for gold. The deeper you dig, the richer you get. The answer, deliverance from the fear of man, is found right in the biblical text. Where else would you expect to find it? If we look at the verse in its entirety, it says, the fear of man is a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord. Those two words, the key words are trust and Lord. Trust. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? I mean, what is, it, what is saving faith? How is it distinguished from intellectual assent? The word believe, pistio, literally means to believe in and to trust in and to rely upon. He says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We draw our lives from Christ like the branch does the vine. We draw our life and our breath from Jesus Christ. Trust. What does it look like? Remember when the Israelites were facing Goliath. 
Goliath represents the world. The Israelites represent the church, the Old Testament church, if I could use that phrase. I'm not suggesting that the church has replaced Israel. We haven't. He has a program for Israel and he has a program for the church. But for all practical purposes, Goliath comes out, you all know the story. Here's the point. The difference between David and the Israelites. The Israelites believed in God. By the way, everybody believes in God. Everybody believes in God. There's no such thing as an atheist. Okay, Romans 1.20, paraphrasing, says no man will stand before God with any excuse for ignoring or denying him. In other words, God doesn't believe in atheists, which is proof the atheist doesn't exist. <laughs> Did you know the atheists are lobbying Congress for a national atheist day? I think they should give it to them. I think they should give them April 1st, which is April Fool's Day, because only a fool would say in his heart there is no God. Atheism is nothing but a crutch for those who cannot bear the thought of identifying themselves with Jesus Christ and admitting that they're sinners. The name of Jesus can clear out a room faster than any other name in the world. That's power. The power of Sinai has never diminished. Trust. The Israelites believed in God, but David believed God. There's a huge difference between intellectual assent and heart knowledge. Keith Green said it well when he said, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than eating at McDonald's makes you a hamburger. To trust God means to believe God. To believe God means to take him at his word. David understood very clearly the Abrahamic covenant. And he acted on his faith. He who trusts in the Lord. At least that's what it says in your English Bible. But in Hebrew it says, he who trusts in... There are four Hebrew consonants and no vowels. In English, it's Y-H-W-H, pronounced yud he vav Yud-Heh-Vav-Heh, you can say Yahweh. We don't know the exact pronunciation because the ancient Jews were so fearful of pronouncing the name for fear of breaking the third commandment. He who takes my name in vain shall not go unpunished. We lost the pronunciation, but we know what it means. It means the eternal self-existent one. The one who is and the one who was and the one who always will be. The eternal God without beginning and without end. He is our great God and Savior. Without beginning and without end. I took my son to an introduction to gymnastics class. It was going to be 90 minutes. So I had a nice, big, thick book. I was going to be all alone for 90 minutes with my book. And uh, a couple minutes into it, a man walks up to me and says, Do you mind if I join you? And in my peripheral vision, there are empty tables on both sides of us with empty chairs. And I said, No, please join us. Join me. Love to have you. Sit down. 
So he sits down and he's got this little tiny computer. I've never seen one so small and I was fascinated by it, so I asked him about it. And as I engaged him in conversation, it was quite obvious that this man was very articulate. So I, I couldn't help myself. I said, excuse me, but uh, do you mind if I ask what you do for a living? He said, no, not at all. I'm a professor of philosophy and comparative religion at Rockford College. <laughs> And I thought, this guy could be an atheist. <laughs> so I said, uh, do you mind if I ask, I'm just curious, are, are you an atheist? He said, uh, yes, I am. Uh, what do you do? I said, I write Christian books. <laughs> I forgot all about the book I was going to be reading. Because I knew I was about to have a lively discussion for 90 minutes. And by God's grace, because I'm, I'm an emotional person, I'm passionate, I'm wound a little tight. Uh, <laughs> ask my wife. That's why she's not here. <laughs> Fortunately, the Spirit of God in His grace, I heard the still small voice of God, if you will. The thought occurred to me, He's blind. You got to remember, he's blind. Which allowed me to maintain my composure because I knew I was going to hear some really stupid answers. <laughs> it allowed me to maintain my composure and my compassion so I could speak to him in love. So I could correct my opponents with gentleness, which I was able to do for 90 minutes. I wish I had it on tape. I have five minutes left? You're kidding. Oh. Oh. Well, I'm not going to tell you this story now. In fact, I want to know why the Bible, our speaker, only gets 45 minutes. What's up with that? I should have 15 more minutes. I should have 20 more minutes. All right, I'm, I'm going to share that story tomorrow. Oh. No, it's your fault. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, um, yeah, three. We're down to three. Man, there's so much more I wanted to share with you. Well, I can only say this uh, in closing. We have been privileged beyond belief to share. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close with an illustration. And if I go 60 seconds over, I know you're going to give me grace. 60 seconds, come on. We're supposed to redeem the time. Making the most of every opportunity. I was in a Mexican restaurant with uh, about a dozen volunteers that uh, have been with me to the jail on a regular basis over the years. We were having a great time. We were kind of loud. And uh, four guys walk in the restaurant, and they, are, they have a dark countenance. It's quite obvious. And they sit right next to us. 
His chair, they're facing this way, my wife's facing this way, and his chair is this far from my wife. They're speaking louder than we are. There's four of them. They're speaking in a very foreign language, and my wife, who is as bold as a lion, turns around and says, uh, excuse me, I'm just curious. Are you speaking Farsi? And they said, yes, we are. How did you know? And she said, well, I come from an Armenian and an Assyrian background, and I recognize Farsi when I hear it. Well, usually when an Assyrian meets another Assyrian, it's like Middle Eastern music comes out of the sky, and they start dancing around the room with the handkerchiefs because there's not a lot of Assyrians on this planet. So they get all excited, and they're very outgoing generally anyway. These guys weren't interested in dancing with us. My wife turns around, she leans forward, she whispers, and she says, They're Muslims. <laughs> I said, No. She goes, Yeah. <laughs> so without even thinking, which is usually when I'm at my best, I said, Excuse me, gentlemen, pardon me, I'm sorry to interrupt, just curious. I'm open, you know, I'm non-threatening, just curious. Are you guys Muslims? One of them says yes. The second one says he's undecided. The third one won't even speak to me. And the fourth one says, I'm not making this up. The fourth one says he's a Nazi. He is a, fo he is a uh, follower. He's a Darwinian evolutionist and a follower of Adolf Hitler. And he starts monologuing about all the glories of socialism and being a Nazi. The whole restaurant can hear this guy. So I get up and I put on my coat and I walk around the table and I walk right up to him. Oh. I walk right up to him. He's sitting, I'm standing, open, open body language, non-threatening, hands folded, slight smile. And I said, excuse me, sir. And I leaned down just a little bit and I said, excuse me, sir. I said, there are three reasons that no man will stand before God with any excuse for ignoring or denying him. I said, first of all, all of creation cries out that there's a creator. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies show his handiwork. Night after night they speak, and there's no language where their voice is not heard. I said, the second reason that no man will stand before God with any excuse for ignoring or denying him is the word of God. That is, the Bible and Jesus Christ. I said, Jesus Christ is the most famous person who's ever lived. In fact, it's 2013, it's 2014 now, but this was last year. Uh, uh, it's 2013 because 2,000 years ago, a real historical person came to this planet who had such a profound impact on the world by what he said and by what he did. The whole world marks time by his birth and by his death because three days after he was crucified, he raised himself from the dead by his own power. Nobody ever did that before. I said, Napoleon said of Jesus, I know men and I tell you, Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person, there's no possible term of comparison. Caesar, Alexander, Charlemagne and I have all founded empires. But on what did we base our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire on love and today millions are willing to die for him. I said, I can prove the Bible is true with one word, Israel. I said, in Ezekiel written 2,500 years ago, God said, that because of their disobedience, they would be exiled from the land, their enemies would overrun the land, the land would remain desolate for a long, long period of time, and in the last days I will bring them back as a nation. 
Looking back at history, that is precisely what we see. In AD 70, uh, General Titus and the Roman uh, soldiers sacked Jerusalem. The Jews ran to the four corners of the earth to save their lives. The land remained desolate for a long period of time until after World War II when Hitler was finally stopped. I couldn't believe I just said that. (laughs) I remember saying to myself, did you just say that to this Nazi? I said, after World War II and Hitler was finally stopped, the Jews began to trickle back into the land. And on May 14, 1948, they were recognized as a nation by the United Nations, precisely as the Bible predicted. One of the reasons I'm a Christian is because I've read the book and nobody can can guess that good. I said the third reason, and I'm I'm almost done. (laughs) I said the third reason. That no man will stand before God with any excuse for ignoring or denying him. And I took a half step closer. And I leaned down a little bit more. Hands folded. I said, the third reason is right inside your chest. I said, Romans 2.15 says the law is written on every man's heart. Every man knows it's wrong to murder, it's wrong to steal, it's wrong to lie, it's wrong to have another man's wife. Every man knows there's a God in heaven because the sun and the moon and the stars declare his glory. And you know it's true, and I know you know it's true, and God knows you know it's true. Isn't that true? (laughs) He jumped out of his chair, he leapt forward, he stuck out his hand, and he said, Man, if I was going to choose a religion, I'd choose Christianity. And he shakes my hand. I said, honey, you got the Muslim tracks? Give me the Muslim tracks. She's got a purse this big for, with gospel tracks for every imaginable situation. She, they're all in alphabetical order. She goes to the Muslim tracks, which we wrote. She gives me four of them, and I hand a Muslim track to each one of these Muslims, and they took it with a smile and said, thank you. We paid their bill. There's a lot more to the story, but I don't have time, so I'll close with this two-liner. I was speaking at a men's conference a couple of months ago in Lakeland, Florida, and I shared that story. And after my seminar, a guy came up to me and said, I just heard a man give his testimony in a church in Detroit, Michigan, who said he's a former Nazi, and somebody shared the gospel with him in a Mexican restaurant in Chicago. It's got to be you! Peace unto this house. I'd like to give you a commercial about my books, but I don't have time. We'll do it later. Thank you.